Hey everyone, welcome back to the Period Chats podcast. We appreciate you hanging in there while we took a little break to enjoy summer, but we are back and kicking off an episode with, you know, one of my favorite people to talk to is another dietitian. And so we've got Callie here and we're going to be talking about bladder health and something called IC. So Callie, can you introduce yourself and tell us all about IC? Yes. Hey guys, I'm Callie. I am a dietitian. And yeah, we're going to talk about interstitial cystitis or IC. It's hard to pronounce sometimes. So we're just going to call it IC for today. And yeah, I've personally suffered from this condition my whole life. I got inspired to specialize in this condition because there was only one other dietitian in the whole world that was doing that um, when I just became a dietitian. So yeah, um, interstitial cystitis is basically what you would picture when you think about a UTI, but when you get a urinalysis done, there is no infection present. So it's just like a UTI with no infection. So think bladder pain, burning with urination, um, frequency, urgency, can't get off the toilet. You feel like you're, you, you have to go like... <laughs> empty your entire bladder, but only one drop of pee comes out. It's the absolute worst. Um, it could be pain with sex, could be a si or a symptom, um, pelvic pain, pelvic pressure. So a lot of symptoms that are not fun. It affects both women and men. A common misconception is it's only women. It's not. Uh, their most current statistic is I think around four to eight million women and one to three million men in the United States suffers from IC. So definitely more people than you would think. You probably haven't heard of it before because people don't always feel comfortable talking about it because it is, you know, your bladder, anything that has to do with, you know, your reproductive organs or your pelvic floor or anything like that can sometimes be a bit taboo. So people don't always share. However, I am encouraging my followers to be more open about it. And yeah, that's kind of an intro to IC. Um, I'm happy to take you through, you know, the diagnostic process, the treatments. What do you want me to do? Yeah, let's jump in and start with like, how did you know something was wrong? Because I feel like that that's a lot of times what our followers want to know is like, is it me? Is it all in my head? You know, all these common questions because we're so often told, oh, you're fine, take an Advil or you just have a UTI, take an antibiotic. So what was your kind of cue off that, no, I need to dig deeper on this. And what were those symptoms in that process like? Um, well, for me personally, growing up with this pain, I knew people around me weren't in the same boat. Like nobody else was having bladder pain. Um, so I kind of just pushed through the pain for a while. And then I don't know what, what happened, but I think one day I just went on Google and I typed in like burning with urination and obviously UTI pops up first, but then um, I put afterwards no infection because my urinalysis would typically come back without um, bacteria. And so that kind of started the diagnostic process for me. I got referred to a Euro or no, first I got sent to a urologist. And then I also eventually started to see urogynecologists. So they specialize in both urology and your 
gynecology. And um, yeah, I mean, the diagnostic process didn't take very long because by that point, <laughs> I had already self-diagnosed myself before I walked in the door. Um, so yeah, the diagnostic process, I mean, it's kind of like IBS in that it is a diagnosis of exclusion. So they're going to want to run various, you know, tests, maybe do, um, I honestly don't know what, there really isn't like a standard procedure for diagnosing, but you basically want to rule out all other causes of your symptoms. Um, it could be, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction. They're going to want to check your, your pelvic floor muscles because that presents very similarly and can be misdiagnosed. Um, it could be endometriosis. Unfortunately, that's kind of difficult to get diagnosed without um, having that procedure done. Um, but yeah, they, they may or may not want to do a cystoscopy, which is a scope of the bladder wall. Um, that could be done under anesthesia or not under anesthesia. Um, I would recommend getting anesthesia. <laughs> Personally, it was awful for me. Um, that's something that is a really hot topic in the IC community is lots of doctors are just like, no, you don't need anesthesia. Let's just do it in office. And then like, there I am in the office, tears coming down my face. Like it was so painful, but yeah, there is a lot of um, medical gaslighting happening in our community. Doctors saying it is all in your head. Um, luckily, I didn't experience that, but it definitely is a reality for so many people. So that is something that we as a community struggle with. Yeah, I think that that's a great place to start because I think that's why a lot of people don't know about it is because right. like I had no idea about it. One of my friends also has I see. And then I learned a lot from you on TikTok. And it's crazy that it affects a, a large amount of people. And there is such limited research. And like you mentioned with endometriosis, because I recently went through this like ruling out process because I, my doctor, my gynecologist thought I had endometriosis. And she was like, we went through the whole ruling out process. And then she was at the end of it, like, okay, well, the only thing left to do is have surgery to see. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. That, that, that's how we are going to do this. And it sounds like I see similar of like, okay, we're going to roll all these things out and then we're just going to assume that you have this. Mm -hmm. Yep. Pretty much. It's, I hate to say it, but it is kind of like an umbrella diagnosis. Like they can't figure out what's going on with you. So they give you the diagnosis and then it's like a free for all when it comes to treatment. I mean, there's, there are a lot of theories emerging in our community on like different subtypes and phenotypes because they're we are such a diverse population that there someone with IC could have like symptoms and experiences completely different from mine but yet we both have IC so it's that's what makes it really complicated is there a lot of research going towards IC are you aware of any that's currently going on no, um, there, there's a few trials going on, but nothing huge. Um, I mean, the IC Association advocates as best they can, but there really isn't a whole lot going on. And I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it because I've said it before and everybody always agrees with me. But if more 
men had IC, I think we would be closer to a cure. I think that's a very valid thing to say, because when you look at the disproportionate amount of research dollars that go towards anything that has to do with the female reproductive system, it's yep. it's just not there. It's, it's not. It's not there. And it's the truth. And I think it's OK to say it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's baffling to me. I mean, I'm surprised, but I'm also not surprised. Okay, so we don't have a lot of research on it. So a lot of what we're talking about might be just like best practices or speculation. Do they have any idea what causes IC or if it's genetic, if it's an autoimmune, like they have Mm -hmm. any idea? Nothing's proven, uh, just theories right now. So one theory is autoimmune. Another would be genetics. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of just speculation and it's, it's really hard to say personally for me, I think my genetics played a huge role in it. And my root cause is like nervous system dysregulation. Just I've been a high anxiety person my entire life, suffered from IBS and IC and just, I am that person and I grew into a, a high anxiety adult and it's it definitely affects my bladder because I hold my stress in my pelvic floor. And when you do that, that can cause all of these symptoms that we're talking about. Which also is a very common place to hold stress, like in the pelvic floor, the hip area, like the whole pelvic region is a very common place to hold stress. So that's a great point. And it is a struggle to unlearn that. <laughs> like I've been in PT since I was a freshman in college like that's almost eight eight ish years I think wait no six six years sorry I'm thinking high school um so yeah it's definitely a struggle so that brings us into like the treatment side of things so if there's no we don't really know the etiology and we don't 100% know what causes it how do the treatment paths come forward and are there any standard practices Yeah, so there used to be a hierarchy of treatments that went from like first level down to sixth level and and the first level would be like less invasive and then the the sixth would be the most invasive, which would be like surgery, bladder removal. But about a year ago, the American Urologic Association updated their guidelines for diagnosing and treating IC and they did away with the hierarchy and now it's kind of just like it's whatever the doctor and the patient feel is best is what they recommend and that could be both good and bad because some doctors are just very pro invasive procedures like we we have something called hydrodistension which is a procedure where you go under anesthesia and they stretch your bladder with fluid and super invasive. Um, We have something called installations, which is where they insert a liquid medication through a catheter into your bladder. So that is invasive because you have a catheter in that can be painful. Um, We have, you could get Botox injections. I had them in my pelvic floor. You could also get them in your bladder, but the risk there would be um, losing control, like getting um, incontinent and having to self-catheterize yourself. So 
these procedures can both aggravate people with IC symptoms and it can just be really traumatic. I mean, I, I definitely have some trauma from past uh, treatments that didn't work. We also have, there's one medication that is FDA approved, but then they found out that people were having eye damage from it. So now there's all these lawsuits. Now it's like nobody's recommending it anymore. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's just everything is so experimental and trial and error. And like I was saying when I started this tangent, like doctors will just be like, let's do these procedures, like skipping over non-invasive, more holistic approaches, like investigating any diet triggers or going to pelvic floor PT or, you know, managing stress. Stress is so big for us and it's, it's frustrating. Yeah. I mean, it is frustrating. It sounds exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause people coming into the IC community, like most of us had never heard of this condition before. And all of a sudden your doctor's recommending all these things. So most of us are going to say, yeah, sure. I'll give that a try. I did exactly that. I was so desperate for relief and I tried everything possible and nothing helped me until I started addressing my stress and my diet and a couple other smaller things in my lifestyle. So, Well, that beautifully segues into the next part is obviously we're both dietitians. We love talking about food as medicine and nutrition and just really leaning into like whatever we can do through diet because it's such a powerful mechanism and something that we all engage with on a daily basis. So being an IC dietitian, what does that look like? Like what's the process and kind of identifying those triggers and how does food play a role in IC? Yeah. Um, back in 2007, there was a study done at Long Island University where they looked at the effect of different foods, beverages, and supplements on the bladder and people with IC. So what they did was they sent out 300 or so surveys to people with IC. And this was like back when we didn't have, I don't know, email and internet stuff. And it took really long. And so they eventually ended up only getting about 100 surveys back. And so we actually had a diet that was created from that data called the IC diet. And what that diet entails is they they created a list of the most bothersome items based on the people in the survey. And those included things like alcohol, caffeine, carbonation, citrus, chocolate, soy, MSG, artificial sweeteners. I think that's pretty much, those are the big ones. Um, and you may notice it's everything fun in this world. <laughs> it is. It's interesting. I was thinking, cause like we were just talking about that. I recently got diagnosed with Hashimoto's and I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Cause it's in line with the autoimmune triggers mm -hmm. yeah, but it is everything fun and that can just feel so defeating yes so yeah the the IC diet was born from that and there have been studies since then that kind of are similar in format you, unfortunately we can't study the effect of diet alone on IC because of all of the other potential triggers like stress hormones allergies you know other things that could 
be a confounding variable. It, it's almost impossible to study that. So we're kind of just going off of what 100 or so people said were bothersome to them. And the biggest misconception in our community is that people think they have to follow the IC diet forever. So what they're what's happening is they are getting diagnosed, their doctor is handing them this list of foods and they're told to stop eating those and that's about it. They're not they're not explaining it. They're not explaining how long they should follow this diet for. There's just a huge gap in education. And then they're not referring out to dietitians. So it's like people with IC, they get diagnosed. They're told they can't have these awesome foods anymore. And then they're kind of sent on their way to deal with it on their own. And then they go down the rabbit hole that is the internet and Facebook support groups. And they they just get so confused and overwhelmed. And the what I'm finding in, I, I've been doing this now for about three years, is that people think that they are way more diet sensitive than they really are. There, There is a level of diet sensitivity. I, I see it as there's a spectrum of diet sensitivity. There's people, you know, on one side that are not at all diet sensitive. And then there's people on the other side that are very diet sensitive. And then everybody else falls in the middle. And in working with my clients, we're finding that people are more towards the not diet sensitive end of that spectrum. And the only way you can figure out how sensitive you are and your specific sensitivities is to do an elimination diet. So that kind of leads me into how I how I approach this is I, I help people conduct an elimination diet. And in doing that, you can identify where you fall on that spectrum. You can figure out what you're sensitive to, what your limits are on those specific sensitivities. So can you have a small amount of a trigger or can you have it on a day where you're not stressed or when you're not um, ovulating, something like that. And learning your limits can really improve confidence with eating because food fear is very real for our population. People are terrified to eat. That will also improve overall quality of life because we live in such a food-centered society, especially in summertime. There's like parties left and right, vacations, there's foods, beverages, you know, all the things that are fun. And we want people with IC to make choices with confidence. Because if you're stressed about it or if you're not sure, that can trigger a flare-up also. So it's like you can get stuck in this vicious cycle of like food fear and stress and then that causes a flare and then, yeah, it just goes downhill from there. Food fear is so real when it comes to, especially when you know the pain that will come. Like I can only really in my way from like my gut issues is like when I have, I can't have gluten and I know when I have it, that I'm going to be in so much pain. I'm going to be doubled over and it's going to last two to three days. And so then I feel like that creates an extra level of fear of like, Oh, I don't. And then mm -hmm. you're like, get nervous and it makes the eating out experience very stressful. Absolutely. So from there, like obviously navigating that food fear is going to be a huge piece of quality of life. Do you have any tips for that or things that have worked for you personally or your clients or like, do you have resources kind of, how do you even approach that? Cause I think that that's like a whole separate. Yeah. Whole separate it's, probably podcast. It definitely is. I actually did an episode of my podcast with a, I think she was an intuitive eating dietitian. And okay. We we'll have to link it. 
Oh, we'll link it. We'll first. link it. We will. Um, <laughs> yeah, with my clients, I mean, once they join my um, group program, knowing that they have the support of two registered dietitians and a community of almost 100 people who are also going through the same thing, I think that just takes so much pressure and weight off their shoulders, just knowing that they're not alone in this anymore. So I think that's really big, you know, whether someone can meet with an RD or if they can find a support group of some sort, like, I think that's really important. Um, If food fear is becoming like crippling, you know, maybe try to find a therapist that can help you through that. Um, It's funny, I actually just watched a TikTok of, I don't know if you know Erin Judge, she's an IBS dietitian. Sounds so familiar. I'm sure I probably you probably them. have seen her. She just did a video on like what to do if you're experiencing food fear. It was specifically for people with IBS, but it I think it was so well done. She was talking about diaphragmatic breathing, box breathing, grounding, and I thought it was really great. And we can also link that too. We're gonna link all the things for you guys. It's gonna be you're gonna have all the resources when you leave here. You're gonna have too many resources. <laughs> I love re- I like love resource overload, and I uh-huh. I like love information overload. And okay, so obviously we're on the Period Chats podcast. I've come on your podcast, which we're also gonna link, and we talk about hormones a lot. But you brought that up, and I want to circle back to that because I think it's interesting that we don't know for sure, but we're pretty sure that there's a hormone component to IC and it can fluctuate within the menstrual cycle. Yeah. So there's two types of people who have IC and have hormone or have flare-ups related to hormones. So they're the people who are noticing their symptoms increase during ovulation and then people who experience the same thing during their actual period. And I know that you educated me on what it could be, but I forget. (laughs) Well, basically what it comes down to is hormone fluctuation, which I feel like is what everything comes down to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I need to brush back up, but like bloating, it comes down to hormone fluctuation, cramps. Like, so that's what, I mean, I think it's like one, there's like one research study on it. It's very small sample size too. I think it's like 30 people. It's very small. But what they found was that if you had increased fluctuations around those times or if your hormones were, you know, out of balance, a lot of that can go back to stress, which is just such, I think, a key takeaway of this podcast is food's important and getting medical care is important, but stress is like the underlying to so many of this. And that's what it kind of came out in that research study was we Mm -hmm. think it's related to large fluctuations around ovulation and the menstrual and like your menstrual period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That study too. We'll link it all. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So there, there is a hormone component, but the research is just very, very limited on it right now. Yeah, no, it, it is. And there's just, there's not, yeah, there's not enough research. There's, just a huge disconnect we have all these people that are struggling with hormone related flares and it's like we what do we have to do for these people yeah they can try an estrogen cream they can try hormone replacement therapy but there just doesn't seem to be a clear path or clear direction for people with ic and and there's just so much confusion yeah and it's hard too because 
I know actually we have a decent amount of your community seed cycling. So I'm interested to see if they feel like that's helping them. Because of course, there's going to be no study on food as medicine for IC around hormones. So Mm -hmm. we can do our own little population study on it. Yeah. No, I actually, I wanted to tell you, I had one client who did seem to notice her hormone related flares did lessen in intensity. I don't know about duration, but she did notice some positive benefits. Hey, we'll take any positive benefits we can get. That's like a plus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, we had one other question come in around hormones and I see, and I, again, like it's okay if you don't know the answer or if this is not researched, does I see impact fertility or pregnancy that we got asked that like four times on our, like I did a little story. Four is a lot. Um, there is no research on this as far as I know. I have never heard anything of the sort. So I, my inclination is to say no, but obviously no evidence to support that. I did some research too, because I thought it was interesting. We had four people ask and I was like, okay, we got to cover this one today. <laughs> and it was the same thing. I couldn't find anything that impacted fertility or um, I did find some evidence that symptoms can lessen in pregnancy yeah, it's like we call it pregnancy remission it's it's something it's something that is interesting because yeah people do go into remission but at the same time there are people whose symptoms worsen and then you can't take a lot of the medications when you're pregnant so it it could go either way oh and that's that's something like really annoying that i've heard doctors saying is telling people to get pregnant like that as as a treatment i'm like what are we doing that's like with endometriosis, the doctors will do the same thing. Um, when I was going through that whole process of ruling it out, my gynecologist was like, well, you could just get on birth control or get pregnant. And I was like, I don't want to. Why are those my two options? Why do we have right. to? It's so... is, is there an option number three? <laughs> like, is there an option that doesn't alter my life? Like, this is already <laughs> altering my life and stressing me out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So quick recap. If you're listening and you felt like you are having bladder pain or burning, I'll let you go into more of the symptoms. But like if someone's listening and they're like, hmm, this act like this sounds like me, what would you say their next step is like a good next step? Oh, yeah. I've made thousands of TikToks on this. Um, so symptoms of burning, frequency, urgency, um, everything that points to a UTI, but your test comes back negative. Um, I would recommend asking for a referral to a either a urologist or a urogynecologist. Personally, I've had better luck with urogynecologists, but of course, it, it just varies based on where you're located and, and practitioners. Um, the diagnostic process, you know, take that seriously. Do the testing that your doctor wants to do because they're going to want to rule out all the things I talked about earlier, they're going to want to rule out any sort of like cancer. It's it's very unlikely, but like they just want to make sure. Um, but, you know, advocate for yourself. Don't be afraid to ask questions and push for answers. And yeah. And if anyone has questions, I'm happy to answer them or point people in the right direction of a resource. Um, I literally have so many things going on. Like I have my Instagram posts, my TikTok videos, my podcast, my blog. So like there is a resource most likely. 
Yeah. And we're going to link all of that too. Cause you've got a podcast, which is awesome. Your TikTok, your Instagram, your website, your course, like there are a lot of resources. So if you're listening to this and you do have IC or you're thinking that maybe now you need to go talk to your doctor about it, don't fear. We're going to resource overload you and we'll provide, like there will be some follow-up to this. Yes, we we will give you too much and you're going to love it. I'm going to love every second of it. Okay, <laughs> so where can, like, where's the easiest place that people are listening and they want to connect with you? Where would you say is the easiest place to catch you? Um, Probably Instagram. I'm at Kelly K Nutrition. That'd be the easiest. Amazing. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. And for everyone listening, thank you guys for listening. If this sounds like an episode that you think could benefit one of your friends or family members, feel free to share it and let us know through a review. Or you can email us and tell us if there's something else you want us to talk about. We really appreciate you listening and taking the time to spend your day with us. So have a good rest of your day and tune in weekly because our episodes are back up and running starting now.